1: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
2: Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain, as you can tell from my accent. I've worked for many years in Canada and also with various colleagues in the U.S. I'm retired from medical practice, but I'm still working in healthcare research and development. I see family caregiving as one of the most important supports for health care right now, right across the world. More and more healthcare systems like those of our two countries rely on family caregivers. Family caregivers are the people that the healthcare systems of so many countries rely on. And who are they? The family caregivers, This is what we mean by them. They are the people who go on providing care to a partner, parent, child, sibling, extended family member, neighbor, friend, or co-worker when all the professionals have gone home. And here I'm going to confess, if it isn't already obvious, that I'm an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Our episode today is about civil rights and civil liberties for family caregivers, with two guests, Dr. Deborah Peel and Ms. Michael Vaughan. Dr. Peel is a practicing physician and founder of the U.S. organization, Patient Privacy Rights. Ms. Vaughan is a lawyer and the policy director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. Both of them are deeply involved in pressing for better protection of healthcare privacy in the increasingly electronic world of healthcare. Dr. Peel fights to restore patients' rights to control their health information electronic systems. She does that to prevent generations of discrimination in jobs and future opportunities. Her organization Patient Privacy Rights is now the leading U.S. consumer healthcare privacy watchdog with 10,000 members. She leads the bipartisan Coalition for Patient Privacy, which represents 10 million Americans. The Coalition for Patient Privacy, its efforts have resulted in strong new privacy requirements for electronic health record systems built with the billions of dollars in stimulus funds. One of their achievements has been to get a ban on the sale of personal health information without the consent of the person to whom that information uh, relates. And she's been elected one of modern healthcare's hundred most powerful in healthcare. Ms. Vaughn, adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia in the Faculty of Law and the School of Library, Archival and Information Studies. That's where she teaches civil liberties and information ethics. She's also a regular guest instructor for the university's College of Health Disciplines Interdisciplinary Elective in HIV-AIDS Care. She's the 2010 ACOL-AID winner for Outstanding Contribution to the BC AIDS Movement, and she's a founding member of the BC Health Privacy Coalition, and a frequent speaker on medical privacy issues and electronic health records. Welcome to the show, Dr. Peel and Ms. Vaughn.
3: Lovely to be here.
2: Hi. You're very welcome. Now, I'm going to start with Michael, please. And I'd like you to explain to our audience what actually does civil rights and civil liberties mean for family caregivers?
3: Well, civil liberties are what we consider to be the fundamental freedoms, and where that rests most obviously for family caregivers is the sense of um, autonomy. Uh, the idea here is that the citizen is sovereign, and the kinds of rights and freedoms that we're looking to protect protect against the abuse of corporate and governmental powers, and that's very, very important for people who are um, pressed with the challenges of needing resources for family caregiving, but also because the information at stake is so sensitive, we need to ensure that the rights are protected.
2: Of all the services that the association provides, which do you think are the ones that are going to be of greatest interest to family caregivers?
3: Certainly, as things are proceeding apace, I'm finding so many of the issues, not just with family caregivers, but certainly uh, with them in, in mind, are boiling down to issues of privacy, um, which on the most fundamental level boil down to the matter of control. Who has control over our information and what kind of prejudice might accrue to us if that information gets in the wrong hands or is used in an abusive way? I think that's going to be, well, is currently and it will increasingly become one of the critical issues uh, as we go forward in technological developments in health
2: Deborah, your organization, Patient Privacy Rights, what are its main services? Our main services
4: are to fight for the majority of Americans who don't trust electronic health systems and realize that they've lost control over who can see their most sensitive information from prescription records to DNA to whatever is sensitive in their information their Americans are very very worried and so we we fight for their for their rights to restore their rights by working with congress to pass stronger laws and we got some new protections into the stimulus bill so that electronic health records are going to have to do uh... they're going to have to be better they're going to have to have stronger privacy and security protections built in up front um, and we work with the media to get the word out because uh, gordon you probably know in this country everybody's heard of hipaa but everybody has not heard that HIPAA was gutted in 2002 and it was turned inside out. When HIPAA was first put into effect, the privacy rule, it required that everyone get your permission before they use your data, and that right was eliminated in 2002. So we work with Congress and the media to inform the public that, <laughs> you know, you are right, you have a reason to be frightened of these systems. And then we work with industry to promote the ones that are, that are doing the right things, that are building the right kind of systems that we can trust and rely on, uh, and that aren't selling our data. Uh, there is a massive, uh, health data mining industry in this nation, uh, that, uh, you know, that, for example, uh, the most, the most, uh, the biggest example is the prescription data mining industry. All 55,000 pharmacies in the U.S. are data mined every day. And everyone's prescriptions are sold, no matter if you paid cash for them. And insurers, employers, and drug companies buy the information. It's very valuable. So, you know, we work uh, with the media to get these stories out, to help people understand the extent of what's wrong. And we promote solutions, privacy-enhancing solutions in law and in the
2: marketplace. Of the services that Patient Privacy Rights offers, which are the ones that are going to be of the greatest interest to family caregivers, our audience? What do you think?
4: Well, I, I think our work for privacy is is very important to family caregivers, whether they're taking care of, let's say, uh, a grandchild with uh, fetal alcohol syndrome or uh, an elderly parent with Alzheimer's. The one thing that families want is they don't want that information uh, to become a matter of public knowledge because it it will hurt it'll hurt other family members not just not just the patient you know, for example, um, many forms of alzheimer 's disease uh, and degenerative brain diseases are familial or genetic, uh, and so if that information gets out it, it can have terrible consequences in jobs for for uh you know, the children and grandchildren of the person with that disease. Uh, you know, and similarly, if, if you're raising a young child that has some compromise in, in their, well, in brain functioning uh, for any reason, uh, ADHD, anxiety, depression, if that information becomes public, um, these children, when they grow up, will have a lot of trouble getting a job. And, you know, frankly, the reason that I started Patient Privacy Rights is is I'm a physician in a very privacy-sensitive specialty, psychiatry. And so when I went into practice, patients came in and they said, look, if I pay you cash, will you keep my records private? That's when I learned about the privacy problem. And why did they ask me to do that? Because typically it was about jobs. So they lost a job, they lost a promotion, or their reputations were ruined. and And so they... They understood how important it was to both to get help, but that getting help shouldn't ruin your livelihood or your future.
2: We're going to come back to that in a different way, but I just want to ask Michael a quick question. Dr. Peel's talk, talk mentioned the electronic health record. Do you, say, do you see parallel problems in Canada with the electronic health record?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have a, a different medical system, but the same the same core issues adhere. Um, what are the levels of privacy control that accrue to the patient in such a system, and where is this information being, quote-unquote, shared? Um, I, I, I'm always distressed by the language of sharing because it sounds so nice. Um, but what, in fact, we're dealing with is a system in which... Security, which has been mentioned, um, is abominable, Um, and also the notion of where these disclosures, the forced disclosures that occur because of the way the systems are configured, i.e., who has access to these systems um, in law and how those laws quickly change, which was a point that Deborah mentioned. Um, we are also seeing in Canada the invisceration of privacy laws. And again, because nobody reads the statutes or the amendments or the omnibus bills in which those amendments are buried, we're just constantly re- reassured that privacy laws adhere to all of these systems without realizing what kind of, um, uh, kind of ma- massive moth holes have been created in the fabric of those so-called protections.
2: We're going now into a break, uh, but those issues that you both raised, uh, we will be taking another run at um, in the upcoming episodes. So I'm going to say right now that it's time for us to take a short break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guests are Dr. Deborah Peel and there's Ma- Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We most definitely will be back.
5: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com
1: you got to believe. Listen up. Conceive Magazine is now on the air, live, and on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Hosted by Kim Hahn, founder of Conceive Magazine. Conceive On Air offers comfort and emotional support to women contemplating starting or expanding their family by consulting noted professional experts and by sharing the insights and experiences of others. Kim wants to share her experiences to educate and empower women. Conceive On Air is the only complete resource destination that inspires and informs future moms about their fertility on the journey to parenthood conceive on air with Kim Han celebrating the creation of families
5: are you ready to get freed up the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com.
1: Help, you know I need someone Help. you are listening to family caregivers unite with dr. Gordon Atherley if you have any questions or comments about our program please address them by email to doc G at mymonami.com. that's doc letter G at my. M-O-N-A-M-I dot Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Dr. Deborah Peel and Ms. Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Civil Rights and Civil Liberties for Family Caregivers. Now, I want to talk in more greater detail, or ask you in greater detail about the medical aspects, first of all, of privacy, especially from the perspective of family caregivers. Um, As you both said, we live in an increasingly electronic world where everybody, every organization seems to want every aspect of our personal information. Now, what I'm interested in with this question is what are the principal privacy concerns relative to the, let's call it the personal and medical information that a patient shares with the physician. What are those concerns, and how do they apply to the family caregiving situation? Dr. Peel?
4: Well, um, yeah, thank you for asking. There are many concerns that uh, the public has about the uh, information in electronic medical records. Uh, Of course, I think what I mentioned before and what I have to mention is first again is jobs. People realize when what you say in the doctor's office doesn't stay in the doctor's office, you know, you risk your job. You know, so for example, we know from our government's Department of Health and Human Services that 600,000 people a year avoid the early diagnosis and treatment of cancer because they know the information won't stay private another two million refuse to get early diagnosis and treatment for mental health problems like depression because why they know the information won't stay private um, and even the conservative rand corporation did a study of veterans of the iraqi war and many of them i think i think your audience knows have come back horribly, fractured emotionally with post-traumatic stress disorder that, you know, can result in suicide. But guess what? In the uh, Veterans Administration and in the Military Administration systems for health care, the VA systems, um, there is no privacy of medical records at all in the VA system. And knowing that, veterans refuse to get care because you know, they don't want their superiors to know about it. It, it, it hurts promotions. Um, it hurts how people look at them. And so the consequence of the refusal to get mental health care is that we have today in this country the highest rate of suicide among active-duty military personnel and veterans in 30 years. I mean, that's a, it, it's a national tragedy, first of all, that they, that they suffer uh, in, in trying to protect the world and, and our nation. But it's even worse that they are afraid of getting treatment. So, you know, what we see is the lack of privacy in these systems, particularly as we add what is called a a network of networks and link all of these different places with data together around the world and around the country, is if we link everything together, we're going to have even more leakage, theft, and sale of this information and we're going to see people even more unwilling to get treatment they really need. Right. So, this is a disaster. The lack of privacy causes suffering, causes deaths, um, you know, it causes bad data. If you're someone who really wants the benefits of health technology, that we could have trusted data for research and to improve health, we're not going to get it because people aren't going to want to be in these systems at all. And so, I'm afraid we're going to see things like a black market system where rich people can get care and it doesn't ruin their jobs or their children's and grandchildren's futures, and poor people, uh, you know, are hurt the worst.
2: That raises the question of laws. You mentioned um, um, Deborah Hippen, and we in Canada have um, our own legislation, and that's the basis of my question to Michael. We have these privacy laws. How effective actually are they in protecting the privacy of persons being looked after at home by family caregivers? And I'm reading back also into what Deborah's just been saying. In other words, how effective are these privacy laws we've got? Please say more about that.
3: Well, um, I'm very happy to do so. One of the problems with the laws, we have to keep remembering that the people who really, really want this data, aside from corporate interests, which have been uh, canvassed by, by Deborah very compellingly, are government. Government wants this data, and it's the government that makes the privacy laws. So what we see in Canada is the promise that we're going to build the architecture for massive sharing of your data. But we will have quote unquote legislative protections. And once the architecture is built, we see those legislative protections eroded piece by piece by piece. So the idea that the laws are there, um, are, you know, supposed to be, uh, one of the things that gives us confidence. But the people who are Really itchy for this information can change those laws in a nanosecond. And in fact, that is the pattern that we see time and time again. We are increasingly going to be relying on legal challenges that actually get down to the level of constitutional challenge, i.e. your law, what you've done, to create this dispersal system for this information is unconstitutional that 's really our fundamental protection because government has such a keen interest in this information.
2: thank you um, there's appeal. Why is there so much interest in this medical information as uh, as Michael was saying um, you know governments, drug companies, insurance companies, the rest what are they actually after what what are they looking for? Sure.
4: Well, well, I, I, you know, I agree with Michael. There's there's intense government interest in the information. I think in, in here in the U.S., it, it has to do with uh, delusions about technology. That somehow, if we have technology, and we have all of these magical records and and ways of manipulating data, we're going to be able to figure out how to save money and do great things, do great research, give better care, and so forth. But um, the lawmakers, uh, you know, have a kind of a, and I have to say this as a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, almost a kind of a fantasy <laughs> that there's something magic, silver bullet-like about having all this information that's going to lead to good. And meanwhile, they are totally and absolutely ignoring the current very real harms and the, and the theft of data. Uh, you know, I, we're, uh, we have a massive corporate... Really hidden industry, health data mining industry that's that's worth billions and billions of dollars. you know and if you think about this industry, it's based on theft. I mean, what regular person gets to have a uh, you know <laughs> a, a way of life, a profession, a job based on theft? Well, we don't. We have to provide a meaningful service or we have to make something or do something that matters to somebody. But we don't get to have jobs based on theft. And that's what these data mining corporations do. And the reason that they do this, and and I agree with Michael, it's illegal, it's unconstitutional, and Americans, because you have to prove you've been harmed uh, under state laws and most federal laws, it's very, very difficult to prove that you didn't get the job because uh, the company looked at your medical records. It's very hard to prove you didn't get the loan or the mortgage uh, because the bank looked at your medical records. Because in this country, we don't even have audit trails of who gets all the records. So uh, the information is very, very valuable. Let Let me give you one example. One of the prescription data mining companies called IMS Health had revenues in 2007 of $2 billion. That's one. That's one of the smallest companies that's selling prescription records. I mean, did you go into a pharmacy and get asked if they could sell your records? No. You know, so we're we're trying to get another part of our government to act on this, the Federal Trade Commission, because this is an unfair and deceptive trade practice. No one thinks this is happening. So it, it's a crime and it's unfair. But um, as Michael said, it, it's very hard to get the government to do this. And why do they want it? You know, they're under intense pressure in our country to try to bring down health costs. And if they think if they steal all the information about everybody, they'll be able to figure out how to bring down the costs. Well, there's no question that more information about how individuals are treated and what works and what doesn't could well lead to bringing down costs. Uh, but there are a couple of problems with that. When you take people's data for research like that, look in their records to figure out uh, what happened to them. It turns out that only 1% of the American public would ever agree to letting researchers have totally open, unfettered access to their records. Only no, 1%. I, I'm, so the are in- very
2: unhappy with, with these schemes. Sure. I'm going to intervene at that particular point sure. because I want to bring in the legal question for Michael, which is, What are the civil rights or what rights or what legal protections exist for people in these sorts of situations that Deborah's been talking about?
3: Um, Well, I know less about the U.S. constitutional um, system. In Canada, we would be looking at the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, especially under Section 7, which provides for life, liberty, and security of the person. We have the Supreme Court of Canada um, that has adjudicated the question of whether or not your confidential medical and therapy records are something that Section 7 protects, and we know that they do. The question will be, what does this look like in the context of our massively evolving uh, centralized electronic health care record system? We've seen this vetted in, in other circumstances, like the release of therapeutic records of um, complainants in sexual assault trials. We, we have some basic principles, but we have yet to apply those principles to the government system of centralized uh, records so that's what it's going to look like in the Canadian context when push actually comes to shove and I'm delighted that um, Deborah because she's professionally qualified to talk about delusions has mentioned delusions of technology because you know I'm a lawyer so all I know is about evidence right and I've got to tell you the evidence isn't there um, we have um, we have you know academics who study these meta systems of informatics and I press them every time and I press every government official that I'm you know in debates with and say where is the evidence I've looked everywhere that this actually saved money and or improves patient outcomes. Right.
2: Michael think I'm, I'm going to inter- inter- I'm sorry to do this I'm going to inter- yeah, yes. interrupt you because I want you to carry on after the break on this you a crucial point so I'm going to say once again it's time for us to take the short break this is Dr. Gordon Adderley and my guests are Dr. Deborah Peel and this is Mike Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America uh, Variety Channel. Please stay tuned because we're going on with this important discussion. News.
5: Opinion.
0: Best. Hi, this is Dr. Vijaya Nair. Together with my dear friend, Dr. Howard Piper, we are hosting our own show called Kiss Your Life Hello. We are two internationally recognized experts, researchers, authors, and health advocates in holistic medicine and counseling. We promise you a fantastic show with interesting guest experts to educate and entertain you with the latest information on mind, body, and spirit wellness. Join us on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. See you there.
5: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Help!
1: You know I need someone. Help. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot Now back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Dr. Deborah Peel and Ms. Michael Vaughn. Our topic was Civil Rights and Civil Liberties for Family Caregivers. Now, we were talking about, in a broad sense, the civil rights for people whose information, if I may say so, is being plundered. And Michael was talking about interpretations, particularly from a Canadian perspective, Uh, Michael, please carry on with what you were saying.
3: Right. um, Discussing the, the, the simple fact that there is no established evidence indicating that these massive centralizations of data save money and or improve patient outcomes, which are their two big selling points. We've seen these systems in other jurisdictions all over the world for years and years and years, and yet the metadata that we see on the efficacy, the effectiveness of these programs indicates that they are not worth the money that we put into it, at least in the benefits that citizens and patients are supposed to derive, as opposed to the underground market economies of the data mining industry. In terms of research, which is kind of a point that comes up time and time again, well, surely this is going to benefit all patients because of the research protocol um, that you could apply to such centralizations. Part of the problem with this has already been flagged by Deborah about, well, you're not going to get very good data if people aren't even coming in for treatment or testing because of their concerns about privacy. But further, there's very little research that you actually need what we call in Canada personal health information, meaning identifiable we have the ability to send all kinds of interesting, fascinating statistics straight out of a doctor's office with fabulous charts out of their electronic medical records that don't include anybody's identifiable information. We have a raft of data that we can use for all of our concerns about getting research and effective money, um, money spent in terms of our healthcare dollars. But we don't actually need health. We don't need patients' data. We just need overall arching data.
4: Michael, this is Deborah. I I I really have to disagree with that. Um, we work pretty closely with one of America's major computer scientists. You probably know of her, Dr. Latanya Sweeney, who's built her career on proving how easy it is to re identify health data. Uh, and so that that's that's one of the more alarming parts of this, you know, because it would be lovely if some forms of de-identification of data or anonymization of health data actually worked. But the more data you have, the more data points over time, um, the more identifiable the information is. And, and as you know, health records have locations. They have doctor's names, even if they don't have your name. Uh, and, you know, and if there is anything related to close to your area or your age, uh, you know, it can be very easy to crosswalk the data with things like, in this country, voter registration records. Dr. Sweeney re-identified a former governor of Massachusetts and his family's records from supposedly de-identified state uh, records from outpatient treatment. And so that, that's another one of the scary things. And we think we're going we're to we're gonna have to build wh- what we're hoping for in this country is a system of health banks And a health bank would be regulated and controlled by patients. And so the data wouldn't go anywhere. We could protect it. It could stay there. And if we wanted to participate in research, we could let the bank run the researchers' questions and queries against our data, leaving our data safe in this ironclad Fort Knox place, and give them the answers. That's what our Census Bureau in this country does uh, when researchers want to know uh, things that uh, where where if they release the data, it would be identifiable and people would be known. And so, you know, we need some kind of system where we can where we can get important research, uh, but it doesn't mean that again you or your family are are put at risk for generations of discrimination.
2: Right, uh, Michael, just please come back on that one. Um yes. do you agree with what Deborah is saying, uh, or do you think that? maybe the de-identification is actually going to be better than it has been in the past. What do you think?
3: Well, um, I don't think Deborah and I actually disagree on, well, really anything. Um, I think the, uh, her points about the, the possibility for re-identification are really, really well made. I'm thinking of research in the context of things like quality assurance that the government needs statistics on, et cetera, et cetera. Those numbers can be generated in ways that are, well, about as safe as you, you can get them in the context of the system that we've developed in Canada without actually identifying patients. Um, so certainly the more the more elements of data sets that you use in terms of quote-unquote de-identified data, um, the more you have risks of actually finding ways to, to make linkages. But a bunch of the justifications that we're seeing in the Canadian context for why the government purportedly needs um, personal health information, boil down to quality quality assurance measures and those kinds of things that really are, they're pure numbers. We don't actually have to have um, even de-identified patient data be part of um, the set that goes to um, the government. So, I think there's a continuum here. Um, certain kinds of research are going to are going to really introduce the elements of concern about um, re-identification, and certain kinds of, of um, research. Uh, actually, we've got we're, we're pretty we're pretty safe um, relative to what's being asked for and what's being
2: generated. I'm going to shift now to the role of the physician here, um, Deborah. Um, More and more I'm reading that, particularly in the case of your area, you you know, mental ill health, the um, family physician, the family doctor, will work closely with the family caregiver. Now, all of us who've got family situations know that there is a potential for tension there if one member of a family is uh, receiving or giving information about another Particularly towards the end of the life, end of life. That may be uh, a recipe for tension or family breakup and this kind of thing. Now, without trying to um, suggest the problem, Deborah, what's your sense of that level of sensitivity that exists between the physician who is providing care and relying on the family caregiver as eyes and ears? and the needs of the family as a whole in the sort of situations we're talking about. What do you think?
4: Well, yeah, these are, these are tricky situations if you're talking about family members with mental illness. Um, and so, you know, the, it, it turns out that um, really the, the best conditions for treatment, for, for, for us to really be effective with uh... you know either children or adults with uh... with mental illnesses is if if we really provide them with privacy if we really don't disclose uh, what they say and if we're uh... really uh, don't don't include other family members um, you know by giving them a window into into treatment now you know it gets it gets it gets tricky uh, to talk with with family members without the patient really giving permission or consent. Now, you know, in the case of a child, of course, uh, actually working with the parents is often one of the most important ways to help the child and help them get better. Because, you know, there's a there there are family problems. How do I respond to this child? What do I do that's best for the child? Are are we are we helping them or making them worse? And how you know how can how do you parent someone with with the uh, some kind of a, you know, condition that's not familiar. So, you know, things are a bit different when the patient is a child or a teenager because often the family does need to be directly involved. But even there, we, we have to be very careful not to disclose, um, you know, the really sensitive information about, about the, the young patient to the, to the family.
2: Sure. And, you
4: know, obviously there are exceptions. We would always violate a patient's privacy uh, if, if their life was
2: threatened. Sure. Michael, I'm going to ask you now, uh, really from the point of view of the BC Civil Liberties and Civil Rights Association, do you get asked questions of this nature? Uh, that is what I'll call the social and personal aspects of family um, information, of the kind that Deborah's been talking about. And if so, what kind of advice do you or would you give to them?
3: Well, kind of one of the issues that we've been talking about as a kind of a core belief here is that the the relationship with the physician is a relationship of trust. Um, So, you know, echoing what's already been said, there are hard calls to make, uh, especially around, um, you know, issues of competency, patient autonomy, how those things interrelate. What we do know, and we would say is kind of one of the cardinal rules, is that hard cases make bad law. And so we have to be very, very concerned about systems that essentially impose disclosures, where, as I say, our whole medical model is based on um, the, the, trust, the trusting relationship, the therapeutic relationship as, as a basis of trust. So you know we keep coming back to the importance of that and have concerns about, as I say, systems that effect, effectively erode what, is, uh, what should be relationship-based decision-making within the context, of course, of the broader law. But, you know, these, these individual circumstances that are very, very difficult and personal and context counts.
2: Right. Deborah, this has got to be a, a quick one, but what about the training of physicians in the kind of things that you both have been talking about, the sensitivities, the matters of trust, in these particularly difficult situations as in a family, for example, where there 's mental illness, loss of mental capacity, or death is imminent I, are physicians up to speed
4: sure um, I, I think that physicians in in the specialties of psychiatry and family practice uh, probably get um, you know pretty solid basic training uh, in these matters because you know the family is is terribly important uh at the end of life and certainly if there's a, a, a very serious um, uh mental illness that, that makes it really hard for the family member to function, um you know, the that person's support system is still usually the family and, and um and you have to find ethical, effective ways to work with them. So I would say in two specialties in medicine um, there's a great you know a, a great deal of attention paid to interaction with the family the rest of medicine i think is a little light a little <laughs> light on how to work with families and you know and we often hear that uh... you know the doctors refuse to even talk to the families or, sure. or hear from them at all when they often have some important information to convey or or know of
2: solutions to help it's with them De- Deborah, I'm going to cut you off there sure. because the, the break is looming sure. and um, I'm going to say that therefore we're going to take it This is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guests are Dr. Deborah Peel and this is Michael Vaughn You're listening to Family Care Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel and please stay tuned because we're, we're going to ask them the questions of how the problems they've been talking about would be fixed if governments appointed them to do that
5: the experts call toll-free right now 1-866-472-5787 Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question that's 1-866-472-5787 thank you for calling voice power. money we love it we hate it and everything in between you can be the master of your life and your own economics Join Professor Laurie Lamantilla each week for the program Making Peace With Money. Laurie will help you realize the power to create fulfillment in your life and shed new light on your money madness. You'll learn how to make peace with money and feel the joy and freedom renewed in your life. Making Peace With Money is broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Business Channel. Healthcare is a topic that is prevalent on everybody's mind these days. We've heard of the reform efforts that are going on in government. Where can you get some of the most up to date answers that you need? Tune in to Clint's Cures Answers for Your Healthcare with host Clint Maun. Clint has over 40 years of experience in the healthcare profession and is prepared to offer the answers and solutions to your questions. Listen to Clint's Cures every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel, the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Help! You know I need
1: someone.
5: You are listening to Family
1: Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot Now, back to Family
2: Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Dr. Deborah Peel and Ms. Michael Vaughn. Our topic is civil rights and civil liberties for family caregivers. Now, here's where I'm going to put you on the spot by asking us to suppose that you as individuals are appointed by your governments to oversee the development of public policy to support family caregivers in managing the medical, social, and personal aspects of their own privacy and the privacy of the persons they are caring for. So what are the things that you would propose and why? Deborah, first.
4: Well, what I would propose and why is in this country that we build a truly patient-centered health care system. What we have now is a government and industry-centered system. The patient is not the center at all. One, one, of, the, one of the things that, that I'm most uh, excited about is uh, the nominee to head up the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid is a physician named Don Berwick, who is a radical advocate for patient-centered health care. He believes that health records should belong to the patients, and physicians should have to ask for them. He thinks that surgery should be scheduled at our convenience, not the doctor's convenience, and so on. And he had, he had a marvelous article about this in health affairs that's posted on our website, www.patientprivacyrights.org. And, and I think that, it, you know, if I were put in charge of this, you know, we, we truly don't need new policies. We have had a tradition in this country of over 200 years of patient control of health information, uh, and we have strong constitutional rights to health privacy. Our, our rights to control health information are the strongest of our rights to control any personal information in the U.S. So it's not that we need new policy. It's we have to get away from the, the radical destruction uh, of really what has worked to enable medicine and healthcare care across, across thousands of years, starting with Hippocrates. You have to have trust, trust between two people. And Hippocrates' genius was he recognized that, that people wouldn't tell him frightening things about their health or their, their bodies or their minds unless they knew he would not spread it abroad, that he would keep their secrets. And so that really is that That's got to be the foundation of the healthcare care system you know we we sh- we are today in the u s we are simply little units or commodities generating information for someone to sell and to make money off of you know the healthcare system is not about our health, and so that's what i would do i would i would i would, <laughs> I would do the things that dr berwick uh, um you know outlines in his in his uh paper that's on our website and and to get us there. To get us there, I just want to mention that Patient Privacy Rights has a campaign called the Do Not Disclose campaign, and we want to start in this country a list like the Do Not Call list. If your name is on Do Not Disclose, then anybody who holds your health information should not be able to use it or, or share it or disclose it, without your permission. And we think if we can start a movement like that, and, and the Canadians are welcome to join too, um, we, can get back, we can get back control of our healthcare system.
2: Perfectly fair. Michael, you're on the political platform now. What would you do?
3: Uh, well, as um philosopher queen, I would endorse everything that Deborah has just said. Um, certainly, the whole notion that information is somehow a substitute for relationship is at, really at the bottom of the, um, the, the misguided attempts to make technology our new healthcare system, because it isn't. And so this whole idea of patient control is absolutely key. Um, I think, um, in kind of a ditto of what's already been said, that patients should have the absolute autonomy to um, guard their healthcare records and decide who it is within the circle of care. Because of course, information needs to be disseminated to all of the um, all of the people who have direct need for it. That should that pinnacle, that locus of control, should be the patient. Um, it, our substitute for that, quite often, because the patient doesn't know the system very well, is the physician, and that has worked in Canada very, very well, and what's happening is the, the locus of control is being taken away from that relationship between patient and physician and being designated by the government elsewhere, and that is that's absolutely the thing that must not happen
2: if we're going to retain control of our health information. Michael, I'd just like to follow up on that. What's next? That is to say, you've established or you've described a principle, and like Deborah, you've said this has a historic basis to it, which we should have confidence in. But well, what would you do next?
3: Well, we have a system right now where we, uh, we're, we're told we're behind The U.S. and Canada are supposed to be behind in terms of establishing centralized electronic medical records. Well, in fact, what we have is we have a golden opportunity to learn from other jurisdictions. And jurisdictions like Australia, who were very, very keen on the idea of centralizing uh, their medical records electronically, have just abandoned the project because they see it's a black hole you throw money down and none of the benefits that we're supposed to accrue actually do. So now we're looking at systems in other places that are already disillusioned. We don't have to go through the disillusion part. We can skip straight to the solutions here. Looking at things that I've called the push system, whereby patients can have control of electronic records. We don't need to put our records on, you know, papyrus here. We can have electronic records, but just with the locus of control established with the patient i.e. a record in which there is a networking system where you can push data to people who need it and you don't have to centralize it in a giant longitudinal databases where people pull the information out of who you have no, no way of understanding who they are, where they get their authority, or how that authority gets extended. So the push system where the patient is in control is where I think we need to go here.
2: Deborah, the Berwick plan that... Um you are espousing, if I can put it to you that sure, way, yes. does that contain the idea of push that Michael has been talking about?
4: Absolutely. Uh, you know, he, he states very clearly that the information should belong to the patients and everyone else should have to ask for it. That means that we have it and we push it out. You know, for example, too, uh, you know, Michael's totally right. But Americans are so sort of uh, into thinking that everything that we do is better than everyone else and people in the rest of the world aren't nearly as innovative, as smart, or whatever, you know, that they refuse to look at models. And there's a great one, for example, in the Netherlands. You know, it's a tiny place, but what they've decided is each person is going to get a multiply encrypted personal health record. So anytime they get care at a doctor's office, a hospital Uh, you know, a clinic, a a lab, an x-ray facility, any time health information is created, a copy of that goes into their PHR. Now, the places that create the information, like the hospital, you know, they can use it internally to look at, you know, uh, rates of infection and, you know, do sort of quality things like Michael was talking about. But no creator or holder of data, of your health data in the Netherlands, can, can disclose it or pull it from anywhere, or push it anywhere. The only way for any hospital or doctor or anyone to get the patient's information is if the patient sends it to them from their PHR. So the patient has the most recent information, the most updated, the most correct. And by the way, the people who know what's correct in their records are, guess who? You. (laughs) You know what's right and what's not right in your records. So they've put the patient at the very center of the system in the Netherlands. The data doesn't move between people that you don't even know about like it does in the U.S.
2: Now, very quickly, because we've only got 30 seconds, I'm going to say to you this. It sounds to me as though you two are really moving in the same direction and you have the same set of principles in mind. How much communication and collaboration is there between the U.S. and Canada on these matters? First of all, Michael...
3: Um, I've certainly made a, made a bid to get um, some of the privacy organizations in the U.S. and civil liberties organizations in the U.S. working um, co- um, collectively and um, collegially with with Canada. And I think there's going to be a growing movement along those lines, but it's very very tiny at the moment, and really it's personality based as opposed to um, organization based.
2: Sure, Deborah.
4: I know some wonderful people in Canada, and, Michael, I hope to know you. I I know Stephanie Perrin. I know Anne Kabuki, and and here's what we're going to do and why I want to talk to you more. We are going to hold the first International Future of Health Privacy Summit in Austin in the fall. And so, you know, it is time for those of us who understand that health care and health information, you know, is going to need to be available for our treatment around the world. It's a global issue, and we all want the same protections. The protections of the citizens of every nation want the same things.
2: Right. Now, on that point, I'm afraid we have to close. Um, Time is up. Uh, I want to say, first of all, thank you to our listeners. I hope this has stimulated you in discussion yourselves, Please, would you email us with your comments and questions, which well, I'll happily pass on to our two guests. I want to say thank you to our guests, Dr. Deborah Peel and Ms. Michael Vaughan, for sharing with us their strategic thinking, their sense of purpose, and their commitment. And I would like to say to them, in to use their own language, please keep up the fight, please keep cooperating, because I think what you're saying, and I'm being... I'm coming off the uh, coming off my own perspectives here is fundamental to uh, trust by people in the healthcare system. So thank you both. Now our next episode is about Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, MND, and it's about support for family caregivers. So please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then.